First and second Samuel take place in the story of Israel um, just after the period of Judges. So God has rescued the Israelites from being slaves in Egypt. He's brought them into the promised land where he has uh, instructed them to push the other nations out because he's going to give them the land of Canaan. Then they get judges as their leaders for a while, and then they ask to have a king put over them. And if you remember back in 1 Samuel, God gives them their first king whose name is Saul. And Saul seems like he's going to work out at first, but it doesn't take very much time at all until some bad stuff goes down and come to find out Saul is not a good leader. Uh, and that is exemplified most in his complete lack of trust in God. On three different occasions, he demonstrates that he does not trust in the Lord as he should as the leader of Israel. And back in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 17, God gives explicit instruction about the king of Israel. He says, someday when you have a king, your king has to study the law day and night so that he can lead the people in righteousness. And Saul does not do that. One who studies the law of God trusts in God, and Saul does not trust in God. So, God chooses another person to be king. He picks David. Eventually, Saul comes to a pretty bad end. Him and his son both get killed in battle with the Philistines, and then David ascends the throne, and he becomes king. Now, last Sunday, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. In the chapter just before that, in chapter 5, uh, David has conquered Jerusalem. It used to be under the control of these other people, but he defeats it, and then he takes up residence in Jerusalem. He has a palace built there, and then in chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem with this big, wonderful procession, and there's dancing and singing and cheering and worship as the Ark of the Covenant, which which signified the presence of God among the people of Israel that is brought into their midst into the capital city, which then makes it a holy site and the important center of the kingdom. And today we continue in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and um, it is on the screen. I'll be reading 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Okay. After the king, that is David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock 
to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people won't oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Let's pray. O Lord Almighty, we give you thanks for your holy word. We give you thanks for calling us into your kingdom, calling us to be your children. Thank you for our church where we may come and worship. We thank you for your regard of people and the fact that you will reveal yourself to us, speak to us, and ultimately save and make us new. Please open our hearts to receive your word. Help us to grow in knowledge of who you are and and belief of who you are. Help us to live more faithfully according to your will. Lord, help me to speak clearly and accurately, and may you be edified, glorified, and exalted today in our midst. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. On Tuesday evening... I don't think the stewards are here, are they? Oh, they are. On Tuesday evening, uh, Sean and Lisa came down and had dinner with me and Samantha. They live above us, and we live in the apartment under their house. And um, in the conversation, Sean just said, well, Harrison, aren't you preaching Sunday? What's your passage? And I really enthusiastically said, oh, 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant. It's going to be awesome. And he sort of looked at me puzzled and just said, well, glad it's you and not me. And I guess... I mean, I figure everybody thinks the Davidic covenant is awesome, but if you have the same reaction as Sean and you think phrases like Davidic covenant and things like that are are, um, strange, bear with me, I promise it is amazing. And uh, actually, in, in all seriousness, 2 Samuel 7 is arguably one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. Uh, that's just that's not just me speaking. That's scholars and Bible teachers and people who recognize the whole narrative of the Old Testament. See, Second Samuel seven is occupying a central place right in the story. Um, I use an analogy sometimes for the Old Testament. It's like picture a detective's office with a big corkboard on the wall, and he's got like mugshots, 
and maps and pieces of evidence, little baggies, and they're all tacked onto this corkboard, and none of it makes sense, really. But then he takes strings, and he, he puts the yarn from one thing over to the next corner, and then he connects that down to another. And you end up seeing this whole picture of how everything fits together, and it makes sense in his mind. And that's, that string is kind of like the Davidic Covenant in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. It's like a string that if you follow it, it helps piece together everything and you see the whole picture a little bit more clearly. It's the topic of kingship, which is central to the narrative of the Old Testament. Now, if you'll think with me way back in Genesis, um, some of the promises that God makes to Abraham is one of them is that he's going to have many, many descendants, and another promise is that kings will come from Abraham's descendants. Then, in Deuteronomy, a few years later, God gives the Israelites the instructions about how their future king should reign. And then now in the story, in 2 Samuel, God has made David the rightful king over his people, and the importance of that kingship continues on through the history of Israel. The success of the kingdom of Israel is bound up in the success and the faithfulness of the king to God. Oh, I lost. Oh, I'm still on. Okay. Um, up to this point in the story in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, there's been this building where it comes to the point where David is finally going to be king. And now we get here, he's got his capital city, he's got a palace, the ark is brought to Jerusalem, and then in chapter 7, the construction of the temple is predicted, and the Lord declares that he will establish a house for David. As we read a moment ago in the text, um, David comes to a point of rest, which means that he doesn't have, he's not at war at the moment with his uh, enemies, and he's living in this palace, and as he's enjoying his weekend off of fighting the Philistines and every, everybody else, he, his thoughts seem to drift to the fact that he, he's in this magnificent cedar palace that's beautiful, but then he thinks about the Ark of God, which is just in a tent somewhere in Jerusalem, and, and he does this what we would say a very honorable move where he says, okay, well, I live in a palace. I'm going to make a, a magnificent place for the ark of God as well. I shouldn't be living here if, if God doesn't get a place that's uh, just as nice and, and even better than mine. But God's response to David's idea is a little different than we would expect. We would think God would say, yeah, build me a temple. But instead, he basically says, hey, I haven't asked anybody else for a temple up to this point. I'm not asking you for one right now. I'm not particularly interested in one right now. He does say that there will be one in the future, but David is not the one to concern himself with it at this point. Instead, the Lord uses this occasion with David to flip the conversation on him and say, yeah, but David, I'll build a house for you. And in my studies, I saw that the word house, which is used something like 15 or 16 times in this chapter, there's a, there's a word play on the word house. So when David uses it, he means an actual building with doors and windows, a house that you live in, which, of course, in his mind is for the ark of God to reside in, to live in. But when God uses it for David, it has the connotation of a family or a lineage. Think about it like when we say the royal house of Windsor today in England. We're not talking about a royal building. We're talking about the Windsor family, but we call it the house of Windsor. It's their lineage. And so... God says that he's going to establish a house or a lineage for 
David. Something really important to realize about this chapter um, is that in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 7, the promises that God makes there about having a place for Israel and a place of rest, it's tied to other promises that God has made back in Deuteronomy, also where he made the promise about the king or the instruction about the king. He promises in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that at some point God is going to bring Israel to a place of rest where they won't be at war with their enemies and he's going to give them a place where they can come together, worship God how he is supposed to be worshipped and he'll give them a a specific place to do that. And now in 2 Samuel 7, we see that those promises are coming to fulfillment but they're tied up with God's promise to David about his lineage. So with the coming of David's house promised by God, we get the fulfillment of the promise of a place to worship. It's the promise and the prediction of the temple. In fulfillment of the promises that God made in Deuteronomy, the Davidic dynasty or family from David will bring about the construction of the temple that was promised. Then after that, in verses 11 through 16, God goes on to describe that dynasty, that family he's going to build for David. He says several things about them. They're going to be David's own flesh and blood, his his actual physical descendants. Uh, He'll have a son who will build the temple for his name. His offspring will rule forever. God will have a father-son relationship with the king. And the promise to David's lineage is permanent. Uh, He talks about... When your descendants do wrong, I'll punish them, but I won't take my love away from them as I did for Saul. See, Saul's kingship was not permanent. When Saul continued to fail, God ripped it away from him and said, your family doesn't get the kingdom anymore. I'm giving it to David. But God says, even if your descendants do wrong, they will be punished, but I won't remove my promise from them. The promises to David are permanent and covenanted by God. But then we we encounter a problem as we read on through the story, okay? Yes, we get to Solomon, David's, David's son who becomes king. He does build the temple of God. He is his flesh and blood offspring. He does become the king. But later, Solomon goes crazy and he becomes an idolater. He breaks faith with God and he does terrible things which you can read about in 1 Kings. And then God has this to say to Solomon, son of David, in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. God is speaking to Solomon, and he says, As for you, Solomon, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. See, there's that conditionality there. To David, it's permanent. You'll have a descendant on the throne. But to Solomon, the descendant, it's, Solomon, you'll be the recipient of these promises if you keep in line with the covenant and keep faith with me. Solomon does not. So later in 1 Kings, God declares to Solomon that he's ripping the kingdom away from him. Solomon is not the final fulfillment of the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. 
He does fulfill part of it, of course. He, he's David's son. He builds the temple. But in terms of his permanence of kingship and his everlasting throne, it doesn't happen. So the kingdom is still waiting for that king. And then Solomon's son becomes king, and he's worse than his dad. And on down the line through First and Second Kings, you see David's family is having sons. They're inheriting the throne, and a lot of them are just terrible people. They're not the ideal king described in Deuteronomy who will study the law of God and lead the people in righteousness. And so this, this hope still lasts of God promised David an everlasting throne to his descendants, a righteous person who will fulfill what happened in Deuteronomy, who will lead us to worship the Lord, but the kingdom is still waiting. King after king after king comes and they mess up and they die and then their son takes it over. And as we, as we continue through the Old Testament, we get to the prophets who, who are coming and confronting the people of Israel and preaching to them, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they keep bringing this up, this little chapter in 2 Samuel, reiterating the hope, the hope that the king is still on the way. So in Isaiah 11, for example, we get the reference to the descendants of David. Isaiah 11.1, 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he'll judge the needy, with justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. Go down to verse 10. In, the, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. Then, continue on, about a hundred years later we get to Jeremiah. Again, a prophet preaching to the people of Israel. And he says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David's line a righteous branch, a king who will reign wise, wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So that hope for the promised king is reiterated through the prophet's several different times and in different ways. And it's God's promise, so it's sure, and it remains standing all through the time of the exile, and then when the people come back from the exile, and then you've got the time between the Old and New Testaments, and then you get to the New Testament. There's still no righteous king ruling yet. That's so awesome. You get to Matthew. Matthew's gospel starts with kingship. A lot of people read the genealogy in Matthew 1 and they're like, man, a bunch of names, I don't want to read that. But it's so important. The New Testament opens with Matthew's gospel on the topic of the Davidic kingship. Matthew 1, 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Skip all the names, get to verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, where the first promise of kings was made. Then you get David. 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon. During the exile, the prophets are proclaiming that the king is coming. And 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. And then in the, the Christmas narrative that we read about the Magi, they come and they say, King Herod, where's the king of the Jews that is to be born? And Herod freaks out and he asks the scholars, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they say, uh, according to the prophet, who is it? Is it Micah? Micah, yes. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And the apostles understood this about Christ. If you'll oblige me for a second, I have to read some kind of extensive passages because it's so important. The first gospel sermon ever that Peter proclaims on the day of Pentecost. Peter says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And then the Apostle Paul, preaching in a Jewish synagogue with Barnabas, He's giving a, an account of the history of Israel until he gets to uh, the period of Joshua and Judges when they push all the people out of Canaan. Picks up here. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning David. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think that I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. And he goes on to proclaim that it's Jesus. The crucified, risen king is the recipient of these promises. All since January, since we started this series, we've been, we've been seeing how through Samuel we keep longing for a better king. You know, you've got Samuel the judge at first, some of the things he does are great, but it's, 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 not, it's not the best. It's not what the people need and what we want. Then you get Saul, and we know how he turns out. Then you get David, and even David ends up messing up. And then you have this promise of a better king, 
but you don't see it in all of his sons all through there until you get to Jesus, the son of David. All of David's previous descendants died, but there was one faithful son who didn't forget God, who didn't commit adultery, who didn't break a single command, and though he also died for three days, was exalted by God, proven to be faithful, proven to be the Lord and Messiah, and is the promised son, the reigning king, forever. The promises of the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel are finally fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David and the son of God. And when we think about a king, I mean, we, we, don't, have, we don't have kings today, but we look to... We look to other things for our security. We look to politicians. And, but as Christians, for, I mean, speaking to myself here, we do have a tendency, like everybody else, to, to put our, our expectation and our hope that, man, if this guy could be king, could be politician, stuff would be okay. If this bill could get passed, if this government work could get done, or even less grandiose than talking about politics, if these things in my life could just make sense, or I could do this thing that I wanted to, everything would be all right. But God tells us in Scripture what the hope we have is, what the hope should be. It's not in men. It's not in accomplishments. The hope we have is what God has already provided in giving a king, righteous, who leads us into proper relationship with God, who restores what was lost in the fall, who brings us together as a people to know him, to worship him, and to be remade as his children under the reigning king. And I need, I need to know that in my life all the time. I mean, I get overwhelmed constantly with the news. People talk about this all the time, well, the news is always bad news, but it is. And I, I spiral seriously a lot when I read these things and I see these things and I'm just like, man, Where's justice? Where is hope? Can any of this be made right? And God's answer is, I've raised up a king. My son Jesus is working things out. He's returning again one day. And he's the hope to set your hearts on. And so a question for myself and a question for all of us is, are we giving the king his proper devotion are we, are we kneeling before him and, and treating him with the, the awe and the reverence as we would a, a, a dignitary or the president or, or a politician that we would think, oh, if you'll just do this thing, it would be, everything would be better. Jesus is working out God's plan of restoration, working out God's plan of peace and justice. And he is coming back someday. And so I want to I say if you've never sworn fealty to the king, the real king, if you've never placed your hope on Jesus, on something real and solid and unchanging and not something transitory like people or money or a job or something, now is your chance because Jesus opens new life to people. Jesus is reigning. He shows people the way to God. He brings them into God and he restores them to right relationship he doesn't give us rest from physical enemies, but he gives us rest from the deeper enemies of separation from God, 
shame and guilt and doubt and fear and anxiety. He gives us rest from those and he brings us to a place where we can worship God, which is our rightful place where we actually need to be. So the, the, the yarn going along the corkboard traces its way and it ends at the throne of Jesus. Come to Jesus, either for the first time or maybe another time since yesterday. Come to Jesus and let him, let him remind you that the true temple of God is those who come to him and allow themselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. As Paul says, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus remakes us and fills us with the Holy Spirit, turns us away from the path we were on, the darkness, the guilt, and the shame, and brings us to be a temple of his Holy Spirit. It is the gift, it's the hope that God sets before us, and it is ours to take. Our king himself says, and I'll close with this, the very end of the story, the very last little piece on the corkboard, if you will. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to everyone according to what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city, meaning the, the new city, the new world that Jesus will make. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride, again referring to the new city, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. God promised Abraham in Genesis there'd be a king. He gave instructions about it in Deuteronomy. He promised it to David. He foretold it through the prophets, and he brought it to final fulfillment in his son Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, great king, thank you for ruling and reigning. Thank you for giving us hope. Oh, Lord Jesus, remind us of who you are. Free us from our fears and our anxieties. Free us from seeking solace like the rest of the world in people or in stuff, accomplishments, or in feelings. Show us you are our only solid, unchanging, eternal hope. Oh God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for finally bringing the righteous king to show us how to know you, how to come to you, how to worship you. Make your people more and more faithful members of your kingdom. As we go today, teach us how to remember that and how to share it with the people in our lives. Be magnified and glorified in the rest of our worship. Shape us to be like our king. Amen.